You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi, and this is podcast episode number... 1,175, and I think we're going to have a good show for you today. You know, run your company. Don't let it run you. Many business owners decide to go into business for themselves so they can have more freedom, invest in their passion, and work on their own future. But as many of you know who've started your own business, it doesn't always happen that way. So I've invited author John Warlow to come and discuss the Eight Drivers of Company Value and How You Can Get Control of Your Own Future and Destiny. John, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you, my friend. I I wonder if we could start the interview. I want to talk about the components of a solid business, but before I do that, maybe you could set a little bit of context for our audience here who are predominantly CEOs and business owners across North America. What's a little bit of your background, John, that positioned you to be the author of this book? Oh, wow. I started and exited a couple of companies and, and sort of made all the mistakes that are to make when it comes to exiting a business. And I tried to codify some of those in, in a book I wrote in 2011, called Sell, and, and that gained some, um, a bit of an audience. And then in 2015, I wrote another book called Out About a Customer, which is about creating recurring revenue. So it's really just hard fought, you know, kind of uh, in the trenches experience of building a company to sell it. You know, a lot of folks grow a business for many years, but never really think about the exit. It's just something that's sort of off on the horizon, three, five, ten years away. And and so what I try to do is, you know, through the books and, and Value Builder is, is get folks to think about what's the exit, how an acquirer think about your company, that sort of thing. So your first book, Built to Sell, with the bottom line, kind of creating a business that can thrive without you. And in my open, I kind of talked about the vision that many entrepreneurs have when they start and create their first business. But I'm wondering if you could now share maybe the components of a solid business, you know, valuable and sellable. But what what are you seeing in the work that you're doing with uh, business owners to help them create a business that is built to sell? Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to distill it down to one core idea, and I I hate to make it sound so simplistic, but it's easy for me to say and very difficult to do, but essentially the the idea is that you've got to build a company so that it can thrive without you personally. So when an acquirer comes in and and buys a company, obviously they know that you're going to be leaving. Uh, Likely you're going to be um, going off and playing golf or, or hitting the beach. And so the idea is that for the business to have any any sort of transferable value, it has to succeed without the owner. And so many businesses, like you said in your introduction, where the owner is is kind of uh, the business is sort of held hostage by the owner, or perhaps vice versa, where they're both interchanged. And so, you know, the the objective is to is to get the business to succeed without the owner. And that's um, again easy for me to say, and very difficult for for folks to do. And at what point in a business evolution can it start to become a business that can thrive without the daily involvement of the entrepreneur, the founder, the business owner? You know, I think I think one of the acid tests is is can someone else do the selling? Uh, a lot of founders are great, you know, people, you know, great spokespeople for the business. They're the they're rainmaker for the company. They're the ones customers know and, and interact with. And as long as that's the case, the business is going to be very 
very unvaluable or it's not going to be very valuable in the marketplace. The real asset test is can someone else do the selling? And what I found, and that's a little bit of kind of a canary in the coal mine, like it's, again, relatively easy to, to say that. What I have found is that by focusing in on picking one lane, doing one thing better than anybody else, that allows other people to start getting some reps in on selling the product or service. And that's what Again, I found to be the precursor for to getting the other people to other people other than the owner to do some of the selling is to stop doing so much. You know, as founders, uh, we kind of fall into the temptation a lot of times of this kind of shiny ball syndrome where we're always looking at you know the next big idea, the next big product we could sell, the next you know, service we could offer. The problem is, as we do that as founders, we make it increasingly more difficult for our employees to follow. Right, because we're off looking at the next thing, and, and what employees thrive on is repetition, getting you know getting the the pitch, getting the the the, the talk track down, and and we're we get bored too easily as founders, and so it's a bit of a uh, a common mistake is that a lot of founders start selling way too many things, and the precursor to getting other people to do some of the selling is to stop selling so much stuff and focus on a couple of things that you you really have a point of differentiation around. What have you found as far as being focused on a specific area, a niche for businesses to be able to scale and kind of become being able to operate without direct involvement of the founder? Well, I think it's it's critical. I think you you've got to do one thing better than anybody else. One of my favorite, one of our kind of great case studies that we use at Valuable. There's a woman named Stephanie Breedlove who ran a business. She was in the business of doing payroll services, and you think, well, payroll services—that's commodity, right? Paychecks does payroll, ADP, thirty. I mean, there's all these companies that do payroll. She focused on a very specific element of the payroll game, which was to do payroll for nannies, so parents who had a nanny to pay. And so you can imagine that's not an area that ADP wants to spend a lot of time on or paychecks because there's, you know, you're, you, you're doing it for one person. But she got really good at doing payroll for Nanny. She built a company up uh, to around $10 million in revenue. She sold it last year for $54 million, an astronomical multiple by any, any practical measure of multiples. She, she sold it for, you know, five or six times revenue as opposed to what is a traditional multiple of something like five or six times profit. And again, there's a whole litany of things she did right. One of them was to pick a lane, right? She didn't get tempted to do payroll for every other category. She stuck to her knitting and she said, no, we're going to be the world's expert at this one tiny uh, niche in the marketplace, which is payroll for nannies. So she got acquired by a company called Care.com, which is the uh, kind of Angie's list of care providers. So you want a, you know, a babysitter in your local market, you plug in your zip code and it'll tell you, you know, in the OC, here are the you know, 10 babysitters that are five-star rated. Well, as you can imagine, those people who are members of Care.com need they need a payroll service to pay their their uh, their caregivers, and so it was a natural kind of uh, fit, hand in glove, and 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 care bought them for fifty four million dollars. Would have never been an interesting acquisition candidate for care if Breedlove had done what most people would have done, which was to start 
broadening the services that she offered. She did one thing for 25 years, and it made her an irresistible acquisition candidate. We're talking with John Warlow. He is the author of several books. We're really looking at the content in his first book, Built to Sell, and later we're going to talk about the automatic customer. You know, you gave probably one of the most compelling answers to that question that I've had here on the years that I've done Critical Mass Radio Show and podcast. So we may be clipping that answer out and using that to reinforce this concept of finding your lane, as you call it, or your niche, as I think of it. So thank you, John Warlow, for a substantive answer. I'd like to turn the direction now to inside the book, uh, Built to Sell. And could you share with our audience, uh, just kind of at a high level, some of the eight value drivers that you write about and talk about and your company works with business and entrepreneurs to build into their business? Yeah, sure. Switzerland structure is one of the biggies. So Switzerland, you know, the country, Switzerland, obsessed with independence, right? Didn't join the two world wars and send troops to Iraq. Uh, you know, Switzerland didn't even join the United Nations until the country had a referendum on whether or not to join the United Nations. I mean, these guys are obsessed with independence, right? And I mean, they even, you know, it's even a punchline and a joke around the Swiss, right? That, you know, I want to be, I want to be Switzerland on this factor. Well, Entrepreneurs should remember the country of Switzerland when it comes to their business because the most valuable companies are ones that are not dependent. In other words, they're independent of any of the three legs of the Switzerland structure, which are customers, employees, or suppliers. So what you want as a, as a founder is a company that has good customer diversification, not too overly dependent on any one customer, uh, not equally overly dependent on any one supplier, by the way, which is often one that gets overlooked, and also not overly dependent on a single employee. So the last thing you want as a founder is some amazing chief revenue officer who is a great glad hander, amazing rainmaker for your company, and drives 80% of your revenue. Because while that's a helpful asset or a great employee to have, it also makes your business too dependent on that employee. So you, you want to be Switzerland when it comes to any one customer, employee, or supplier. And that's, uh, that's one of the eight drivers we call the Switzerland structure. That's interesting to look at it on the, on those three legs of the stool, because as you were describing the employee, I think of all too often companies where maybe two founders start it, and one founder is the rainmaker, and something happens, and the rainmaker, for whatever reason, leaves the company. Rarely have I seen in my uh, experience here in Southern California that those companies that lose their chief rainmaker really ever regain the momentum that they had without that person and personality in the business. So I can see how that could yeah. extend to your employees as well. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. And I, and I think, uh, you know, acquirers know that, right? So acquirers, whether they be a private equity group or, a, you know, a corporate buyer from a large enterprise company, they know that they take out the owner and write them a fat check for their business. <laughs> that, that, that company is going to suffer if the, if the owner is a rainmaker. And, it, and so it actually is one of the set, you know, second of the eight drivers we call hub and spoke. But hub and spoke refers to how dependent the company is on its founder. And in particular, the dependency usually relies around customer relationships, right? right. So if the customer relationships are in the hands of the founder or one of the founders, it can be a death knell. I mean, then you get sucked into it. I'm sure you've seen a lot of businesses there in Southern California where where they get sucked into one of these earnouts or what they're called a vendor takeback, where essentially the the owner or founder sells some of their company or, or in 
private equity land, this would be a, a majority recapitalization, where the, the owner sells their company, sells in air quotes, but in reality, they're trading their company for a job in, a, in another company where, you know, they might get a bit of money, but a lot of their money is, is in, you know, in futures, right? In an earnout, it's like, you know, you've got to reach these targets of, as a division of our company, and if you don't reach the targets, well, then sort of, you've just sold your business for pennies on the dollar. And, and the reason those things happen is because the company is not ready to go to market yet. The founder is too integral to the company, and that's when an earnout is used to try to bridge the gap. So we're talking with John Warlow. We're still exploring much of, I mean, there's so much content in Built to Sell, and it's so appropriate for the audience that listens to Critical Mass Radio Show and podcasts. I'm glad to have you on. We're going to be talking about the big ideas in the automatic customer, his second book, in a few minutes, but I wanted to sit on this. I have a question for you. I am seeing on my experience here and my interviews on the radio show that we have an aging population of business owners who I believe should the next great recession happen or even minor recession may be highly motivated to want to sell their business early in that down cycle. I mean, it's, it feels to me basic economic supply and demand. We may see a, a significant number of businesses that have come up for sale when we hit into a recession. First question. Do you share my view that we have an aging population of business owners and who might be predisposed to wanting getting out of their business before the recession takes heed too greatly? And secondly, what suggestion do you have for those people who might be listening to this radio show or future podcast? Great question, and I do share your view that we're about to see, you know, a so-called tsunami of business sales. You know, I can't remember the stats, but it's like somebody turns 65 every three seconds in America today. It's a huge proportion of the population that's turning 65. Some of the stats from the Exit Planning Institute suggest that 76% of business owners today expect to sell their business in the next 10 years. So it is a it is a very big majority. Our our stats at Value Builder, by the way, are similar. You know, seven seventy. 75% of all business owners say they want to exit the next 10 years. And so that is, it is going to flood the market with a lot of businesses. If you then overlay a recession on top of that, you've got a flood of supply. And you know what happens when a flood of supply, obviously prices go down. And then you've got the recessionary factors that, that potentially could depress valuations further. I think we're in for a dodgy, a dodgy couple of years, potentially, if that were to take place. My biggest advice for founders is if you're even thinking about getting out, now's the time. You know, when I talk to founders, they, they have this kind of perma five mm-hmm. approach to selling their business. It's always like, oh yeah, Rick, I'm you know, <laughs> you know, never you know, three to five years I'm out, right? You you meet up with them another five years later, you say, Hey, you thought you were gonna sell you, oh yeah, no, we're just making a few tweaks. Three to five years, I'm out. Another five years goes by the same story. And we're all, because the goalposts move for us, right? The horizon just keeps moving. We get to a million in sales and we think, oh, this is pretty good. Maybe two million sounds good. And then you get to two and you're like, well, why don't we get to five? And then I'll sell them. You know, then maybe we'll get to 10. And the problem is the goalposts keep changing. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think we are, we are in a unique time in history where valuation multiples remain high. Financing is still relatively easy for people to get, and interest rates are still relatively low, although they have gone up. You know, there's still a lot of dry powder in the private equity markets, which means there's a lot of people that have money to buy businesses. But man, I think three years from now, five years from now, that the, the, it could be a very different landscape. We could have a flood of businesses with a recession and and potentially higher interest rates. And so, I, you know, if you're even contemplating it, I think it's a great time 
to accelerate those plans. Thank you, John. We're talking with John Marlowe. Now I'd like to move our focus in the few minutes that we have left here on Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast to your book, The Automatic Customer. I wonder if you could talk about the big ideas contained in your second book. It's really about recurring revenue. So we talked about there being eight unique drivers of, of value in, in your company, Switzerland Structure being one, Hub and Spoke being a second. The third one is recurring revenue. And what we found is when we talk to clients and business owners about recurring revenue, they're kind of eyes closed over. They're like, yeah, but I don't know. Maybe you don't know we're not a SaaS company. We're not a software company. We're not a media company. We don't have recurring revenue, right? We've got contracts. We've got, uh, we respond to RFPs. We've got customers. We don't have recurring revenue. And, and, and that's a problem. Uh, again, for the reason I stated earlier, buyer looks at your business, they know that you are a linchpin in terms of making it run. And if you can show them that, hold, hold on a second, we've got recurring revenue, we've got subscriptions or maintenance contracts. Or revenue, by the way, that the definition being that customers have to actively stop buying instead of start buying. That's our definition of recurring revenue. And so, you know, what we found is a lot of business owners were resistant to that idea and just think, you know, that doesn't apply to our industry. And so what, what, I, what I wanted to do with the book, The Automatic Customer, is to say that no matter what industry you're in, you can create some recurring revenue. And so I did a bunch of research into different industries and discovered that in virtually every industry, there are pioneers that are creating recurring revenue models out of, again, businesses and industries that are unusual. Like, one of my favorite examples is this, these guys in New York who started a company called H. Bloom, and they're in the business of selling flowers. And if you know about the business of selling flowers, it's, I mean, it's brutal, right? You've got flowers, you cut them, they start rotting in the fridge. Typical flower store in America throws out half of its inventory because it's dead, they can't sell it. You've got to have very expensive real estate because you've got to intercept companies or customers on their way home from work. Tons of seasonality, right? Like Mother's Day and Valentine's Day. I think it's a third of all flowers are bought on those two days of the year. So you've wow. got huge seasonality issues. Well, these guys, each bloom came around and said, okay, why don't we create a recurring revenue model here? And they said, well, who buys flowers on a regular basis? And it turns out that it's the, the spa owners and the restaurant owners and the hotels who want fresh cut flowers to project that sort of boutique image. And so they said, look, you're too busy to go to the flower store. We'll send you flowers on a recurring basis. And we'll send you a commercial grade invoice. Today, the average transaction at a flower store is $29. The average H. Bloom subscriber, by contrast, will spend $4,500 with H. Bloom as a company. It's a huge, profound difference, right? And H. Bloom has the benefit of predictability. They throw out, last time I talked to the founder Panda, this guy Sonyu Panda, I think they were throwing out less than 2% of their inventory every month compared to more than half at a typical flower store. So I tell that story because I think, you know, whatever industry you're in, there is an opportunity, I believe, to create at least some recurring revenue. And, um, and man, does it help the predictability of your business, but also the value of your company goes up in lockstep. We're talking with John Warlow and uh, the big idea contained in the automatic customer. And, and I love it how with that, ex, that example, John, you sort of brought us all the way back to the beginning, which was finding your lane as well. They found a very clear niche within the flower industry that they could build a business model around that delivers the reoccurring revenue. So these are all, as with the eight value drivers, aren't they? They're all interrelated concepts that entrepreneurs and CEOs need to kind of bring together to really deliver the value that's inherent in their business. 
You're absolutely right. We, we talk a little bit like it's a Ikea furniture, and that analogy works for some. It makes other people roll their eyes thinking of like, like late evenings trying to pull together Ikea furniture. But in my view, it's a little bit like the Ikea furniture instruction manual, right? Like there are some fundamental things you do, you start with to create a more valuable company. One of them, and one of the first steps, is to pick your lane, right? Is to, is to pick the one thing. Uh, we call it TVR, Teachable, Valuable, Repeatable, meaning you're trying to find a product or service that meets the three criteria of scale, meaning it's teachable to employees, it's valuable to customers, and it's repeatable. It's got a recurring revenue kind of leg to it or, or a tail to it. And when you find your TVR, there's a, you know, the next step is building out your recurring revenue model, et cetera. So there's a, it's a sequence of, of steps we take business owners through. And, and I think it's dangerous to do step eight without having steps one through seven done to begin with. But in any event, I think you're, you're absolutely right. They're, they do, they are interrelated and, and it's difficult to do one without doing uh, another. So, uh, so yeah, I think H. Bloom is a great example of that. Mr. Car Wash is another example. I don't know if you have, I'm assuming you have Mr. Car Wash in Southern California. Do you? I'm not familiar with that. Guys? I'm not familiar with that brand, no. I think they're bigger in the southeast, actually, kind of Florida, Alabama. They do car washes, right? And so you think traditional business model, you, you plug, you give them the ten bucks, and they, you know, you put your car through the wash. Well, they said, you know what? What if we did subscription-based car wash, right? Where you pay thirty bucks a month and you get unlimited car wash. And um, and you might say, well, why would they do that? Well, it gives them recurring revenue, and it gives them revenue not only in June when <laughs> people you know, wash cars, right. but in the Northeast, they you know they don't wash cars in November. But Mr. Car Wash keeps digging the credit card every month, and it's just another example of a traditional industry, in this case, car washes, uh, moving to this subscription recurring based uh, billing platform. So, John, uh, I'm almost out of time, but uh, you know, I brought you on because I value the content of the books and the knowledge that you're providing to business owners who I, who their largest asset gen, tends to be their business and they ought to try to maximize its value. It's, it's good for everyone in, in, in my mind. But I also know that you're the leader of an organization that helps business owners to really build in the value of their business. Could you just for a minute um, share with our audience kind of the network of professionals that work with you to help clients build value into their business? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I run a company called Value Builder, and we help entrepreneurs improve the value of their company, often leading up to an exit. We have everybody start with us by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. The average score in that questionnaire is 59 out of a possible 100, and those businesses are trading at around three and a half times earnings. We then work with business owners through our certified value builder community, which are local coaches. We have many of them in, in, in Orange County where you are, and they build up the value of the company. If they're able to get their value builder score up to 90 or greater, those businesses are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit or more than double the business when they start with us. So we've been fairly consistently able to double the value of companies. And, um, and yeah, people are keen to find out more. It's just valuebuilder.com. And if they want to buy your books, where would you suggest they go to find Built to Sell and the Automatic Customer? Anywhere books are sold. Amazon's probably the easiest. <laughs> All right. Well, John, I really want to thank you for the time that you've spent with our audience here on Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I've enjoyed, I've learned, I've taken notes. Uh, I continue to tell people they should read both one or both of your books, and I really appreciate you being a friend of the program and a part of the Critical Mass community. Well, I love the show. Keep up the good work, Rick. Thanks, John.
All right, that's going to do it for this episode. I'd like to thank our engineer for today, Mr. Paul Roberts. I'd also want to thank our engineers, without whom we could not do this show, Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Haley Stern. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, why don't we start with LinkedIn. I'm Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. And until the next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi, 